0: This is Anthony Butler, author of Primal Storytelling, Market for Humans, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas
1: Burdett. Hello. Thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Anthony Butler to talk about his book, Primal Storytelling, Marketing for Humans, published by Lioncrest. Anthony Butler is the founder of the digital marketing agency Can Do Ideas and the creator of the Primal Storytelling Content System. An expert in brand storytelling and digital marketing, Anthony graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and the U.S. Army Ranger School Rangers Lead the Way. He is a combat veteran who commanded an infantry company in Iraq during the invasion of Baghdad.
0: Three Alpha Six, if you can't talk, son, just key your handset twice, over.
1: And interesting fact, he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Anthony, congratulations on primal storytelling and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you very much. That was quite the intro. (laughs) Well... Anthony, my listeners are very concerned about my safety, or I'd like to think they are. And I just want them to know that you and I are not in the same room, so that if I say something stupid, you're not going to try and you know pull some uh, jujitsu black belt moves on me and, and basically do to me what a lot of authors probably should do. So I just want you to know that. I want the listeners to know that I'm safe here. But if we get in the same room, yeah, he could definitely uh, <clears throat> take me out. So, listen, I am so excited to interview you. My dad went to West Point and was an infantry company commander in World War II, fighting the, the Wehrmacht in Germany and France. Wow, that is amazing. So I grew up with like a, an older version of you at home.
0: <laughs> well, I... my. my... My apologies, because my kids think I'm a pretty hard guy.
1: <laughs> a hard guy? <laughs> no. Nah. Yes. No. Nah. Well, listen, I do have to say, though, I have interviewed three authors who are Naval Academy graduates over the years. And you oh, are wow. the first West Point graduate that I have interviewed. So, you know, I, I, it's very important. that I, I, Now i got to go find two more West Point grads to to get on the show before another Naval Academy guy comes on. And I have a number of Naval Academy friends, and I told them I was going to be interviewing you, and they came back and suggested some questions. And, you know, they're really – they're they're obviously still very upset about Army beating Navy this year or last year, and uh, I'm not going to repeat what they suggested that I say to you and, and what I ask you. <laughs> I, I hope you can understand uh, the restraint that I'm, I'm showing here. Well – you can let them know that my class
0: was one of the last classes at West Point to beat Navy all four years, so I can hardly remember a time of losing to Navy. And as a cadet, I never lost to Navy, so feel pretty proud about that.
1: Yeah, and then they went for, what was it, 15 years straight, I think losing to Navy or something like we- that?
0: We- we call that the drought years, yes. Yes, yeah. it was a difficult time, but I think we're past it now.
1: But, you know, all my Naval Academy friends, they give a lot of grief to West Pointers, and, but, but they respect them. They respect West Point. It's a rivalry. But their real ire, it seems to be directed at the Air Force Academy. <laughs> <laughs> They're, I don't know, maybe maybe you're all united in that, but they're always making really much more serious jokes about the Air Force Academy, probably because the Air Force Academy is basically brand new. I mean, having started in the 1950s.
0: <laughs> well, I, I can tell you the thing that I thought was hilarious about the Air Force Academy over time was – You see it during the Army-Navy game is the Air Force will run commercials or even during the Army-Air Force game, they run commercials. And there's this one commercial they ran and they're touting this fighter pilot and they're like, you know, Captain so-and-so, he went on seven combat missions during Iraq. (laughs) And I burst out laughing. I was like, seven combat missions? Try, try seven <laughs> yeah. hundred. Um, you know, do a couple of years of deployments where you're doing a combat mission a day or two a day, or sometimes three in a single day. And you know, seven combat missions is laughable.
1: Ooh, man! So we're getting into a military, a service academy throwdown here on the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> so I. <laughs> I got to get those Air Force Academy I haven't interviewed one yet. So, and, and when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you keep track of trivia like that about your about your guests. So let's get to the book here. There's so many interesting things to talk about. I want to read a quote from. Um, Page 15, and then I'm actually going to want to jump over to chapter five to get something out of the way that I think is very important. You write, Primal storytelling is the culmination of years of work and study of a single question, how can marketers influence behavior? I have tried to capture this system in an easy-to-follow process that any entrepreneur or marketer can use to create high-performing content. It is equally applicable in business-to-business, business-to-consumer, and even for account-based marketers. The process is not relying on some new technology that will become obsolete in 18 months, and I suspect it will stand the test of time. It is based on a deep understanding of human nature and storytelling, neither of which has changed in thousands of years. My hope is that primal storytelling will itself evolve and improve as primal storytellers worldwide work to create marketing for humans that connects and helps solve real problems. So I want to jump over to chapter five. You write, From an evolutionary perspective, humans have not been around long enough to adapt to changes in technology. That happened in just the last 100 years or so. They are still driven by the same primal urges today that drove them in 70,000 BC. It is an important understanding that will help content creators create more effective content by speaking to the primal urges and emotions of people. The better that modern marketers understand how stories tap into primal emotions and impulses of human beings the more likely they will be able to craft stories that inspire action so storytelling is really powerful unbelievably powerful other books that have been on the show about storytelling talk about that yours brilliantly explains that but there are certain words that i think marketers should not use around civilians and Anthony Butler, what I mean by civilians is people outside the marketing department because there's a great perception of marketers as being arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department and they don't understand this. And I, there's a lot of, you know, if you use the word content marketing, storytelling, influencer marketing, on and on and on, they just, the people glaze over. And so I think it's really important that people uh, understand that you have to be careful explaining that to anyone outside the marketing department unless they completely understand this, Uh, talk about what they want to achieve, talk about their goals. And for those who are maybe first time listening to the show and they're not familiar with the storytelling, I need you to explain that story as it pertains to marketing is not about, as you write, creating fairy tales as your mother read you when you were little. We are not talking about just making things up.
0: That's exactly right. What we're really talking about is helping people with our marketing like giving away value early on so that you can build trust and you know part two of of this book is probably going to be primal storytelling for sales in that the stories that the salespeople tell really have to do with the transformation that their current customers are having Mm -hmm. The, the the kinds of things that you can do as a company to help someone You know, and I I think that gets lost in a lot of the corporate lingo is that, you know, especially with B2B marketers, you see, you know, their blogs, you see all the content they're producing is just nonsense. Just trying to be part of some, you know, some ephemeral conversation that's happening on the internet to try to get attention. What they forget is that you're marketing to real people, that, have real fears, real wants. And if you can just talk to them and give them something that they need, then everything becomes easy.
1: Right. And we should uh, share with the listeners that you actually had a background in sales after you got out of the army. And, and you understand very deeply uh, what the frustrations and and concerns are of salespeople and how best to help them, which is why, as I step up my soapbox one more time, the best marketers are the ones that have a deep understanding of sales and the sales process and how people buy. And it's why I've had at least 60 books (laughs) on sales on the show.
0: Yeah. So when I first got out, I was trying to find a job somewhere, had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd never really worked as an adult outside of the military because I, I was enlisted for three years as a mechanic before I went to West Point. And, you know, when I got out, I took a job as a project manager at a manufacturing plant in Connecticut. Long story how I got there, but we'll save that for another day. wasn't making enough money. My wife was having our first kid. We bought a house. We were broke. And I was kind of desperate. And I ended up going to a bookstore and just walking in there one day and just saying, you know what? Somewhere in this bookstore is the answer to my dilemma of, I need more money. And money wasn't something I'd really thought of when I was in the military because I had made just enough to survive. And when I got married, you know, we still made enough. And so I'm looking around in the bookstore and I find this book by a marketer, Dan Kennedy, who everyone in marketing knows. Mm -hmm. And Dan had this line in a book and he's like, hey, very often salespeople make more than the CEO of their company because their job is related to growing revenue. So if you can grow revenue for a company, you can make a lot of money. So literally the very next day, I'd never been in sales in my life. I went back to where I was working and I went to the CEO and I was like, Hey, John, I want to be in sales. He's like, you want to be in sales? You're a project manager. He's like, no one wants to be in sales. I was like, John, I've seen those guys that are all fat and old. I can beat them all. Uh And he kind of took my challenge. He, He let, he literally just a week later, I was in the sales department and 18 months later, I was the director of inside sales. And another 18 months after that, I was the VP of sales and I helped scale them from 18 to 25 million. And that was my first sales job, kind of series of jobs. And then from there, I got recruited to go to a startup in New York city. I had never been to the city very much. I didn't know how to ride the subway, but I went down anyway. And I got in on the ground floor of a startup with about 50 or so people. I was like number 57, something like that. And just a few years later, we had, you know, hundreds of employees and successively sold that company to a big public company. And while I was there, what's the one thing that every sales guy needs is you need leads. And we didn't really have a marketing department. And they're like, hey, Tony, you seem like you're a good writer. Get us some leads. (laughs) And that's, that's kind of how it started. Uh Uh-huh. Um, And I think as a marketer, that's why I've really shied away from anything that's quote unquote brand building. Hey, let's, let's make a commercial for the Super Bowl for brand building. Like there's no small business who's doing that. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, even medium sized business that's doing like straight branding. Everyone is doing direct response where they need leads for salespeople. That's why we're really advertising. That's why we're marketing. That's why we're trying to drive content and attention is to get leads to get more sales.
1: Yes. Well, the idea of the story is that our brains are wired to consume stories. They remember stories much longer. We had stories back when our ancestors were uh, cave dwellers long before they could write. So putting things in this format truthful information in that format works extremely well. And on page 117, you write, Understanding human nature and why we tend to think, feel, and take action on one idea and not another is a great advantage when creating content. Most marketers create content with little thought to the psychological makeup of their target audience. So let's go back and... Talk about you and uh, some of the main parts of the book. You write on page 19, the one thing I learned during my time at war was the powerful driving force of primal urges and emotions. Explain.
0: So, when you go to buy something, there are the very top level reasons why you're buying it. So, let's say you're going to cook dinner tonight. Well, you cook dinner because you, you might be hungry, you're feeding your family. But then When you look deeper into why someone actually bought one thing over another, you start to get into emotions. And especially when we look at like, hey, why do you wear those clothes? Well, it almost always has something to do with your place in society, your place in your tribe, like what you're trying to tell the world. Like when you see someone walking down the street, you immediately assume certain things about them based on how they're dressed. You know, you see a man and he's walking fast and he's in a thousand dollar suit and he's got, you know, five hundred dollar Armani shoes. Like you have a certain thing that you think automatically about them based on their dress. Well, why did they choose that? It has nothing to do with clothes and the protection clothes provide and the fact that we don't want to be naked because our, you know, our thin skin is not good with the weather and it's not defense against predators. It's because of our place in society. So what we want to do is when, when we're selling something, we look at the product and like, what does it do deeper? What 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 is it that is delivering that is on an emotional level? And like, like in software sales, for instance, there's a question that I always advise everyone ask is you're sitting around the table and you're trying to sell new software to a company. Let's say it's B2B software and everyone wants to talk about, hey, we do this new whiz bang thing. We're gonna solve, we're gonna solve all your problems. Okay, maybe it's maybe it's IT security or it's servers or, you know, at the desktop. Who who knows what it might be? Is that the lady who's looking across the table at you, the first thing she's thinking is it has nothing to do with technology. It says, if I if I hire these guys, do I get fired? am I going to lose my job? Am I, am I going to now be back on the unemployment line and I won't be able to, I won't be able to feed my kids. That's am I going to be think. thrown out of my tribe? Yeah, exactly. Am I mm-hmm. going to be thrown out of my tribe? You know, in, in modern day times, like I think we overlook those emotions during the sales process and, and definitely during the marketing process. And we, we don't, we, we don't look deep enough. We look at the surface level. Oh, I, I, I provide marketing services. Okay. Well, great. That, that's, You're, you're one of, you know, a hundred thousand marketers in the country, right? How many agencies are there? Mm -hmm. But what separates a good agency from a great agency and what it is, it's a deep understanding of the real reasons someone buys something. Does someone buy a a new $150,000 car because they want transportation to their job Or do they buy a $150,000 car because they want people to see them in that car and know that, you know what? I've made it. Right. Right. Like, you know, what does a car cost? If you look at on one end of the scale, you can buy a $500 junker that's all rusted out. And on the other end of the scale, what do you got? The Bugatti, it's like $5 million. There's a story to be told about the person who drives that car and the signal they're trying to send the tribe. And if you can understand what that motivation is, everything is easier. And it's like that in every industry. It's like I I do quite a bit of work in hospitality. One of the questions I ask all of the hospitality companies is that, why are people really staying here? Okay. Yeah, they want to sleep. They want to be comfortable. But what's the real reason? Is it proximity to something else? Is it they love luxury? Is it You know, is it something, it's something deeper than what you think it is? Because here's the thing. Most of the time we're not selling what we think we're selling. We're selling an experience or we're selling some sort of place in a tribe, a signal to someone else. You know, when you think about when you eat fast food versus when you cook at home, okay? Very different quality, very different kinds of food. You, you might cook very different than like if you eat at McDonald's, right? It's just different. Um, and there's lots of people now that will never eat at a fast food place. Myself being one of them, I never eat there. I never eat fast food. I haven't eaten fast food in over 20 years. Kind of crazy, right? <laughs> and you have kids. That's
1: great. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, it, there's the expression I love. Uh, Your customers aren't buying what you think you're selling. Exactly. But I want to go back to Anthony Butler and your combat experience. It's like when I was growing up, my dad, you know, like most veterans, didn't want to (laughs) talk. He had like four combat tours in his career. But they don't generally want to talk about it. But you wrote about it, so I'm going to ask. Let's go back to what you learned in in combat. Because earlier in the book, you wrote, War wears away at the civilized veneer we wrap our primal urges in during peacetime. So what was it in combat? that led you to understand more about primal urges? Well
0: one of the things that started to happen and I I commanded an infantry company in Iraq during the invasion when we on the fight into Baghdad. So I was one of the infantry companies that initially crossed the river to do the first fights into Baghdad. And as casualties start to mount, you know, one of the responsibilities of every officer is to manage the emotions of the men. It's important. Why is that? Well, people start to die. Your friends, you see your friend blown apart. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make the next firefight where you're in the same frame of mind as you were when you first came into the war and that anger builds on itself and it can turn an ugly head in ways that, you know, we don't like to talk about in civilized society. And so the officer's job is to make sure it doesn't get out of hand and no one's violating any kinds of, you know, any kind of laws or things that you just can't come back from. And we're trying to keep it as civilized as we possibly can, understanding that you're there to win. You know, that's, that's a hard thing for people to really understand until you're in it. And, you know, I. I had two men killed on the way into Baghdad. One of them was a an E7, a father of five, and his wife was a second-time widow. Her first husband had passed away from cancer, and she remarried and was married to this gentleman for over 20 years. And He had filed his retirement paperwork just before we got the order to deploy, and he withdrew them so he could deploy with us and then was killed. So it was just this horrible tragedy, and he was a really popular NCO. and. You know, after he was killed in a really horrific way. You know, his platoon and everyone around and that knew him were very, very angry. And they wanted payback. And that experience was just an eye opener for me. I, I think when you're in your everyday life, you have inconveniences and, oh, you get irritated because your coffee came and it wasn't the order that you thought, and you, you're, you're mad, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. You, <laughs> you get cut off in traffic and you're a little bit upset and you're irritated or you're mad. That's not the kind of mad I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about dangerous anger. And most people, I think if you experience that once or even twice in your life, you know you're unlucky. But during war, you can experience it every day. And you just got to be careful. It's uh, it's something that we don't have a lot of experience with in everyday life, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I, I use in the book I use anger as that's the first time that I really started to understand these primal emotions when they come out. You know, and I talk a little bit about there the first time someone tried to kill me personally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this deep, deep, just absolute overwhelming need to respond. I knew I wanted to live. And you know, I I even said there, it's like, I wasn't brave. I wasn't scared at all. You're not even thinking about being scared. You're thinking about, I got to do something right now or I'm dead.
1: Right. So you were in a situation where you were marinating in primal urges. And fortunately, most of us never have had to do that. So that's why you are uh, (laughs) more in touch with that TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Let's uh, jump ahead to... um some of the key ideas from the book. One of them, you say, of the many influences on human behavior, marketers who consider three driving forces of behavior will have an advantage. Primal urges, emotions, and social influences, or as you call it, tribes. Let's talk a little bit about those three, but let's not not necessarily in that order. Uh, Let's uh, talk about tribes. On page 37, you write, for marketers and for the primal storytelling system, the term tribe means something different than it meant to our ancestors. So can you explain what you mean by tribe and why that is important in primal storytelling?
0: Yeah. When I talk about tribe, I am talking about how people think of themselves and the people around them, those relationships that they have, their close relationships and their loose ties. Okay. Their identity. And, Every decision that you make, every purchase that you make, it starts with your identity in the tribe. It's why we have such variation and in price of, of commodity items like, like cars and clothes and houses, okay? It's, it's why you can have a, a car that costs $1,000 and people will buy it and a car that costs millions of dollars and people will buy it. It's because of the signal it sends to the tribe social signals are a huge part of why people buy. And I I think very often marketers overlook that aspect of the purchase. And when you start to understand, okay, what is the social signal that this purchase makes and how does it fit? Like how does it actually influence the buying behavior? Then it makes it a lot easier when you're creating content for them, whether it's an ad or it's a blog post or a social media post understanding social social signals really matters the other thing that it does is you start to think if when i start to think in tribes i think of groups of people that are banded together by demographics and psychographics and it helps me really start to understand okay what's their language like what kinds of things are they interested in so so i have a couple of teenagers right and I, I had kids a little bit older, you know, I was in my thirties when my kids were born.
1: Oh, that's nothing. My wife and I were in our late thirties and realized we'd forgotten to have kids. Now we have kids in their twenties, so yeah, I'm I'm with you.
0: So you see so you're there, like my teenage boys speak a different language. <laughs> it's like I, I'm looking at them, I'm like hearing what they're saying, I'm like, all the words are English and I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> right. Okay. You know and, and I have to like, I have to like question them like a lawyer, like trying to figure out what the heck, what are you you talking about? And some of it has to do with their socialization generationally is different than ours. So if I'm selling something and the primary market is, you know, people who were born in the sixties and seventies, the language is a lot different than if it's, you know, millennials. Or it's this new, you know, kids that are in high school and just going into college right now. It's a different language. It's a different way to speak to them. You know, my, my mother, she's in her seventies, and you can bet if you try to market to her the way that you might market to my her grandkids, like she's not even going to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, she barely uses a computer. Well, you got to take that into consideration. You know, take the the generational language into consideration. And guess what the social signals are different the emotions that they think about when they purchase things are different there there's just so many deep emotional urges and kind of tribal considerations and social signals that you have to think about for each of these groups and and I what I'm trying to detail in the book is look Even if you just have a surface understanding of what those tribes are and what those primal urges and those primal emotions are, it'll go a long way to you creating content that's for them, for that specific group. I'd say the one big mistake that a lot of companies are making is they're trying to market to everybody, and it just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, and you know what? That And just so the listener knows, you go into great detail about ways to determine you know the right tribe and who your tribe is and how to learn more about them. And there was a great story that I'd like you to tell – get it, story? See what I'm doing there? On page uh, <laughs> 61 about – why marketing should go on sales calls. And this had to do with, uh, I think it was when you were in New York City, you talk about one of the largest IT companies. They were not doing well in sales. And finally, you went on some sales calls and it was really obvious what they were doing wrong. It has to do with what you were just talking about. Tell us about that.
0: So, this particular company, you know, and to give you an idea of their size, they, they, you know they have a worldwide presence there they have hundreds and hundreds of employees overseas and hundreds of employees in the united states and they were pouring resources into the new york market and you know they had marquee fortune 500 fortune 1000 customers that were happy you know and they were providing enormous numbers of services to them and they were going to companies that were you know pretty sizable companies you know 25 million to 100 million dollars kind of that mid you know low middle market you know and some of these companies might have 200 employees up you know 150 employees up to maybe 500 1000 employees total and during the meetings they were meeting with directors of IT you know maybe a, a CTO in some of the bigger companies and they were talking about yeah I For our global clients, you know, this is the kind of work we're doing, you know, for, for this, for this client that has, you know, 500 locations, this is what we're doing for them. And I could see the reaction with (laughs) these customers, these leads is that they didn't care about those kinds of clients because they weren't those clients. They didn't care about the services they were providing to these giant, you know, mega corporations because they were little corporations that really wanted to know what can you do for me? Are, are you going to get me fired if, if I hire you? Am I going to lose my job if I hire you? That was another one, you know, like are you going to take my job because you can mm-hmm. do everything? And they just didn't address the the individual hopes and fears of the people that were selling and making the buying decisions, and so they couldn't get past the first meeting. <laughs> you know, the IT sale is a complex sale because very often you've got, you've got IT people that are inside the company that work, they're direct employees. You've got, uh, very often you'll have someone from the financial team, CFO or a director of IT, someone like that involved. And then eventually you have someone from the C-suite, if not the C, if not the CFO himself, maybe even the CEO or the president involved for big purchases, you know, for, Hey, we're going to hire it support. We're going to spend, you know, five, 10, $20,000 a month on it. Well, it's a big, it's a big purchase for them. And it also has a lot of fear involved, a lot of emotion involved, and they just weren't addressing any of that
1: at all. Yeah. It was like one of the questions, the smaller company was saying was after they'd been parading all these fortune 500 logos, how many companies our size have you worked with? <laughs> right off the bat, they're thinking, yep. "I don't, I don't want to be a a, a small fish in a big pond." And, and so they, they, hopefully, they changed it up. There was uh, one other thing you write. I just, I, I can't resist. I've got to mention it. it was on page sixty-eight. You write the reason most corporate blogs fail is because they don't write anything anyone would ever want to read, and they violate the number one rule of writing: don't be boring. They use jargon and unnecessarily formal words to write in a professional voice. And they avoid writing with emotion like it is the plague. In fact, some companies have rules against writing with emotion. It is a formula for disaster. Uh, Let's talk about the, let's get back to the primal urges. And I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which I have never seen in any of the 400 over 400 books that have been on the Marketing Book Podcast, and I will probably never see it again, but I'm going to read it and ask you to explain how it relates to primal urges. And that's on uh, page 71, and the sentence is, the first time someone tried to kill me was a surreal experience.
0: So this story was during the invasion of Iraq, and you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> you have a a coalition that's attacking a country, and we are trying to seize the center of the city, and quell all major combat units. You know, obviously, we knew there was going to be an insurgency of some sort, but we're just primarily trying to get rid of any large scale um, attackers. You know, platoon level, company level, and one of the things that we did is we attacked along axes, these highways that like. It came into Baghdad, so we just we did what we, the. If you heard of the book um, by David Zucchino called Thunder Run,
1: that's right, Thunder Run. Yeah, I was just trying to remember that. Yeah,
0: so Thunder Run was about was about my unit, my battalion, and I was part of that. And we what we basically did is we just charged down the highway and we killed anyone who raised a hand against us. That's what we did. And during one of those thunder runs, probably on. I don't know, the second or third one, I was out on a patrol trying to recover the bodies of some of our casualties. And, you know, our, our patrol was attacked. And I was in a, was in a Humvee with no doors on it. This is before the up armor came over to Iraq. And I was just sitting in the doorway with my weapons, kind of radio on my left ear, weapon pointed out. And, you know, guys with a machine gun came at us, um, they had a fixed machine gun and then some guys ran and charged at the convoy. And this young guy just ran up and he was firing an AK-47 at me directly. Um, and he hit the front of the Humvee with, hit the front of the, the vehicle with some rounds, a couple of rounds went in front of my face and went up out the the top of the Humvee. And, missed the guy right behind me, hit the back of our Humvee and then shot a couple of guys that were in the vehicle behind us. You know, they were wounded. Um, you know, it's just one of those surreal moments when it's a little different than when, okay, you're having a firefight and everyone's a hundred yards away and they you know, you're trying to look for movement and th- there's bullets flying back and forth they're a little different than, Hey, this guy is, he's looking at me and he's trying to kill me personally. Uh, that was a, a wake-up moment in my life.
1: But it, it wasn't until after you got back to your base that you exited the primal urge uh, arena. You kind of kicked in. All the primal urges started taking care of you.
0: So, you know, it's that rush of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. You just, you get it. It's there to keep you alive. Time slows down. You're moving faster than you normally would move. You are stronger than you normally would be, and you're reacting to the moment. Um. You know, saw lots of that during the war. <laughs> there, there was another story of a, a guy who, one, one of my guys who was in the mortars, and he was picking up mortar rounds two at a time and running to another position. So he's unloading a truck, you know, because they were getting resupplied and then running the mortars back to the actual um, weapon so they could be fired. And you got to understand this, this kid is carrying 120 pounds at a time and he's running with it and he only weighs 160 pounds himself. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's just this incredible feat of strength. Well, could you do that under normal conditions? I, I don't think so. But it's a lot more common when you're under direct fire and, you know, people trying to kill you and you want to stay alive.
1: Yeah. You do th- so interesting. Well, let's jump to uh, some of these sp- specifics of these urges. You write that the goal for marketers is to gain a useful understanding of the urges behind human behavior, like we've been talking about, and incorporate those urges into your sales, marketing, and advertising. And let me just mention what they are. We're not going to talk all- about all of them, but it's uh, there's nine, as I, as I, by my count: food, shelter, clothing, safety, protection, sex. Oh, behave curiosity, <laughs> significance, and spirituality. Now, out of those primal urges, can you talk about the ones that are uh, perhaps most relevant for marketing and sales?
0: So here's what I'll tell you. All of these will apply in some way right? slightly different than you might think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we were talking about, okay, you have a 50-year-old office manager, and she has invited a new IT company in, and they want to talk about taking over their IT. Well, let's, let's talk about safety and protection. So the first thing she's thinking about is, if I hire these guys, do I get fired? Okay. Yes. That's safety for herself, her job, her livelihood, mm-hmm. protection of her family. Okay. Those are things that she's thinking of. And then- More than cost. Said, <laughs> way more than cost. Yeah. Cost is a, is a distant, distant fifth. Yes. And there's another one. There's one more that you have to remember on every sales call, especially when you're doing those kinds of sales, is the significance to her. If you get hired and she's the one that brought you in, okay, now she's the hero within the company. She feels good about herself. She did a good job. She gets a pat on the back from the executive team. Maybe she gets a raise later on. Like that's a win for her. Okay. You don't get past her if you don't make her comfortable. You don't. You don't get to the next step because here's the thing on it when it's, when it's a team sale is that in a team sale, everyone can say no, but only one or two people can say yes. Mm-hmm. So you've got to talk to everyone at their level and what's important to them.
1: Yeah, and the uh, you know, these buying teams are only getting bigger and bigger, and their exactly. motivations and concerns and fears are often very different. And, and back That's to the point of right. trying to talk to everybody the same way. Exactly right.
0: You know, and then the two that I think companies have the hardest time getting their arms around are sex and spirituality. Okay. It's not, you're not going to use these in a lot of different situations, but you do see them being used. You know, like think of all of the marketing around motorcycles and automobiles for the last hundred years. What do you see? Well, you see scantily clad young women in bikinis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. And they've done enormous amounts of testing and remove those ladies. And guess what? They always go back to it because sex sells. It really does. Yeah. The spirituality side, and we're not really talking about religion necessarily. What we're talking about is people's connection to nature and things in the broader world. So we see a lot of this kind of, you know, speaking to the spirituality side in, vacations and hospitality, like taking a destination. Like like for instance, I live in Montana. I live where people vacation, you know, and there's people who come here and they want to do a hike and they want to go to Glacier Park and they want to experience, you know, this pristine wilderness that's there. And, you know, everyone wants to see a grizzly bear. They want to see deer and antelope and elk and because that's that connection with, you know, what's beautiful, that, that divine, that, that sublime moment. You know, I, I do a lot of backcountry hiking, And, you know, I have some pictures that are just amazing, amazing, amazing of pristine backcountry, you know, taken from the tops of mountains or cliffs or waterfalls. And it's just this amazing feeling. And if you have the opportunity to, you know, involve spirituality in in your marketing, it can be very powerful. Mm. It's not not for every brand. It's not for every service or product. Um, The same thing with sex. You could use sex in most marketing, but you always have to be smart. Is like, is it really appropriate to our audience? And maybe not. <laughs>
1: Probably yeah. not. Yeah. But these are the things to be thinking about before you start exactly. talking about your product and your uh, bandwidth and your speeds and feeds. Oh my goodness! Well, let's let me let's transition over to the other part. So those are the the primal urges, and they're there. Don't. Pretend they're not there, folks. (laughs) You write on page, let's see, 103, humans have basic primal urges, such as food, shelter, clothing, and more elevated urges, such as curiosity, significance, and spirituality. Primal emotions, on the other hand, can be described as the feelings humans experience and which emerge from these basic drives. Can you talk about some of the what you call cornerstone primal emotions that are uh, maybe more helpful for marketing and sales.
0: Yeah, the, the two that I think are used the most that you, you see every team using it, are curiosity and the secret, the unknown. Mm. Okay. And, you know, the secret, the unknown thing, that's used on almost every clickbait headline that you've ever seen, you know, it's like the thing that Scarlett Johansson did that, you know, made her sexier than ever. Like, and, but they don't tell you what it is and you know, it's clickbait. You know, if you click that link, it's just going to send you to some BS crock of crap page Mm -hmm. that you don't want to see, but you just can't resist and people click anyway. Right. Right. Um, you know, curiosity is a big one. You know, people are curious about why things work about understanding, you know, what is in the world. Um, you know, using curiosity skillfully, using curiosity skillfully, you know, it. it those things can really help you.
1: Right. Um, and it seems like it's tied to the human brain's focus on novelty, because that's one of the things that's probably kept our ancestors alive over the years, finding something different, looking for movement. Was it a threat or is it not? That would be related to, to curiosity, I would think.
0: I think you're right. I do. And- you know curiosity and not you know the unknown secret. The, like think think about the phenomenon around the book, the secret. Okay, you, you heard about that. You know, it was hundred million people watch this video. Well, one thing that most people don't understand is the entire book, the secret, was basically plagiarized from Wallace Waddles from the nineteen thirties okay? It's the exact same book. It's the exact same idea, everything about it. They just reformatted it and called it The Secret, okay? This idea of manifesting your vision. Is that the Rhonda
1: Byrne book?
0: She she was one of them. There's lots of others who uh, (laughs) were involved in promoting that whole thing.
1: So some of the others are uh, fear, lust, love, excitement, nostalgia, and then you mentioned surprise, surprise as well. So I want to talk about the couple of brand, what you call brand stories. The four, the, I mean, there's lots of approaches to stories that could be used, but you've boiled it down really nicely to four. <laughs> and for that, I thank you. It's like origin stories, vision stories, transformation stories, and brand value stories. What would be an example of an origin story?
0: So the origin story is the story of the founders. So let's think about Apple.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You got Steve Jobs, you've got Wozniak together. Wozniak's this super genius, and they create a computer. And then Steve Jobs goes out and he tells lots of stories about this computer and he sells it. And that origin story and how they got started and how they did it, it drove that business forward. You know, Elon Musk did the exact same thing with SpaceX. You know, before before they even had a rocket, he's taught you know, he's creating this company that's gonna help it's gonna help the world get to Mars and that origin story, and then he connects it directly into a vision,
1: yes, which is you know what? Mm-hmm.
0: We're gonna make humans a multiplanetary race, SpaceX, okay? The guy didn't even have a rocket yet. He didn't even know anything. He, he he hadn't even hired his first scientist yet, and he's talking about getting to Mars. How's that for an interesting an interesting story?
1: Yeah, but it helped and him. Then, uh, it helped him like raise money, get investors, and even attract uh, talented employees to come work for him on this this vision, as you say.
0: Exactly, exactly. Now, not everyone is trying to get to Mars and save the human race and have a, a multi planet. You know, so for those of us that are on Earth, you know, our origin story is how we got started, what it was we were trying to do when we got started and, and the struggle that we went through. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I kind of use that and I use my own formula in the book where I talk about like, you know, how I first discovered primal urges and why it was important, and how it's related to marketing. It's kind of a an off the wall, it's an off the wall story. It's not not many people have a story like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then my vision story is, you know what, I've helped a lot of companies scale. I've actually, I got I got proof of it. I got data. Like my vision is, I want companies to stop creating content that sucks. Let's not let's let's get rid of this graveyard of corporate blogs and let's. I think that's something. too ambitious
1: a goal, Mister Butler. No, I'm it kidding. really is, right? <laughs> no, you've picked a target-rich environment, as they say in the military. Oh, my goodness. But you know the I think if I'm not mistaken at one point in the book, I can't remember where you talk about how some companies, like the marketers, maybe if it's a bigger company and there's more layers, it's hard to extract that origin and vision story thing if, yep. if I'm not mistaken. But the transformation story seems like a, a, a really good one because you can talk about your your customers and the success you've you've provided. can you Can you explain this transformation story? Is that the one that's probably used more than origin and vision?
0: Yeah. It's used a lot. You know, those are case studies. These are those transformation stories of how you helped, you know, what value delivered to customers, you know, what was it like? What were the problems that they had before they found your product or your service? What was it like working with you when they were going through it? And then what was the after? Like, you know, what, how did their life change for the better after they work with you, you know, and in the fitness industry, every fitness, influencer out there uses before and after pictures. And, you know, before me, you were fat and after me, you got six pack abs and you're, you know, you're posing for Olympia. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for, for most companies, I think it really has to do with, Hey, there's a business problem. And this problem was really hurting people. They found us, they worked with us. We did everything we could to help them. And afterwards they were happy. That's the story.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, it seems to me that you, you could take it down to like a product sheet, right? Well, a lot of companies will say, well, this is what it does, this is how it's made, you know, it's all about the product. And it would be just yep. as easy, in my mind, to – you could still communicate that, but you could put it in the in the format of a story and say, this is the product, but make it about, you know, she was uh, – uh, running a, a factory and she was worried about downtime and she was looking at different you know widgets and this came along and she tested it and it worked and now she's got a, a almost complete uptime or something like that where inst- instead of just talking about the product, you talk about the transformation story. And I I wish more companies would do that sort of thing. And, t- and I don't think it takes up any more space on that sell sheet.
0: It doesn't. And, you know, I, I think – I think in case studies, I I think that a lot of product sheets miss out and they're just a waste of space because features are fine, but no one buys features. Everyone buys benefits, right? They they don't buy the drill. They buy the hole, Mm -hmm. okay? We want people to understand that we've already had success with someone just like them.
1: (laughs) They understand me. Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay, folks, this is what you want to tweet out. Facts tell, stories sell. Yes. Just a couple other uh, things I wanted to touch on that I, I just uh, – I would hope that more companies could, could think about this. Maybe when they get to work after they've been listening to this driving there. But you talk about – in another chapter, you talk about uh, plots. There's all different kinds of plots. You can go crazy with all these uh, types of plots. But you talk about just five That work really well in content marketing. And let me list them, but we're not going to talk about all of them. Overcoming the problem, the underdog, the quest, life's journey, and solving the mystery. Let's talk about that first one. You say overcoming the problem is one of the most used plots marketers employ, but I would argue they're still not doing it enough. But explain the overcoming the problem. It's kind of similar to the transformation story, right?
0: it, it, it's related to the transformation story, but it, it's it's a little bigger than that
1: mm-hmm.
0: in that we're starting with their pain. We're starting with like, what is it that is driving them to look for a solution to what is going on right now? Okay, And once we do that, and then we can talk to them about, hey, this is how we can actually help. And, and I, I think the reason that this particular plot line is so attractive is because it's the easiest one it's the one that's the most obvious. Hey, I'm an accountant. I can help you with your taxes. If you have any trouble with your taxes, you come to me and I'm going to solve your problem with taxes. That's it. Okay. Now, the more creative you are and the, the cleverer you are, you can tell that story in a hundred different ways that can be really attractive to the target audience. You know, and that that's that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to tell a story that is Attractive to a small audience, not to everybody. Because um, what, what if, what if I do taxes and I, I focus on elder, you know, elders, you know, people who are in retirement or headed towards retirement versus, hey, entrepreneurs or versus, you know, people who are just getting out of college and starting their career. It, these are all different kinds of markets. And so I can tell that same exact story, multiple different ways with multiple different takes and, um, the second one there, the underdog, is one that I think a lot of young companies can do well with, especially if they're going into a really competitive market. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that being small, being scrappy, you know, not being the the eight hundred pound gorilla? That can be a, a
1: great strength. Like the, I and think I'll, you gave the example, of Avis. Back in the day. Yes. Oh, they, that's right. Yes. There was Hertz was number one and Avis was number two and forever. Oh well for I don't know, for fifty years maybe they were we, we're number two. We try harder.
0: We try harder. And and I think that that worked so well and it rang with people because you know what? We love underdogs and mm-hmm. we really want to work with someone who is Really into helping us, you know, you're not just, you're not the, the tiny, tiny customer in their big, big ocean of customers. Like you're important to them and they want to feel important.
1: Yeah. And I think we, we, we more easily relate to the underdog than to the hero. At least I do. Absolutely. So, let me add, uh, let me just, let me uh, put a pen in this as they say, uh, another great line was for page 182 where you write, marketers creating corporate content seem to believe that to be taken seriously and reflect well on the brand, they must be serious and write in a dry educational manner. Pompous, overwritten, and void of human emotion are not the hallmarks of professional writing. They are the signs of a lack of of skill. Even the most conservative businessman sitting in his Madison Avenue office with a view is a human being and appreciates a well-told story that delivers value. You know, let me uh, just jump to one other thing that was, I thought was really super practical. And again, I couldn't resist. That. You write us, as 193. Marketing teams struggle with deciding what content to produce and how to do it. Most of them make the mistake of starting with their own products and services and starting to tell the world about them. They usually conduct a brainstorming session that starts with all the marketing material and brochures the company wrote about how great they are with the decision to turn these into listicle blogs, social media posts, and other forms of corporate diarrhea. Most corporate content fails because it is lifeless, dry information that they try to disguise as useful content for their readers. And then you go on to write that it can be helpful for marketing teams to understand the three types of content relevancy as it pertains to their thing, what they actually do to serve clients. And I want you to talk about these. You say there's relevant content, semi-relevant content, and non-relevant content. If you could talk about those, because you talk about non-relevant content is the hardest for companies to embrace, but it has the biggest potential for long-term success.
0: Go. All right. Relevant, non-relevant content. Relevant content – Is things about what you do. So I'm a marketer. I tell stories. I, I produce content about storytelling and marketing, right? That's, that's my relevant content. Semi relevant content is the stuff that, you know, that I produce that's about marketing in general. Maybe not just primal storytelling. It's about, you know, getting attention, SEO, like all of those peripheral ideas to the things that I actually do non-relevant now this is where things can get really interesting is that let's say for instance i i want to target copywriters let's say it's carpet and i want i want every copywriter in america to know more about primal storytelling because that will help them write the best copy ever well if i just talk about myself and i don't think about copywriters themselves and i'm totally making this up as i go right now i might think okay what's the day in the life of a copywriter you know, what, what's hard about them? What, what's the head trash that they have that keeps them from, from moving forward? You know, h- how do you become a great writer? So maybe I start something and maybe it's, Hey, a hundred ways a copywriter can be more creative. I'm trying to help them in their job it has nothing to do with primal storytelling. It has nothing to do with marketing, but mm-hmm. it's about creativity for that copywriter. Right. Now, this could be a very top of the funnel kind of piece where I'm just trying to attract copywriters. And then that frontwards piece kind of gets them interested in in my brand in primal storytelling. And then they connect with me. And then, you know, maybe down the road I can do business with them.
1: Yeah. And there's another good example of a client of yours that was an engineering company with like a lot of older engineers. And they were trying to reach uh, was that right? Uh, or construction company, they were trying to reach young engineers. Talk about what they did. They didn't talk about themselves at all.
0: They didn't talk about themselves at all. What we settled on was we would create a leadership development tract and we would have produce content for engineers that are just getting out of college, that are going to big companies. And how could they advance their careers and advance themselves as a professional? You know, and so we did stuff like, hey, um, here's a white paper on how to run meetings, how to solve problems, how to be, how to relate to other people on your team, how to be a better team member, you know, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And leadership,
1: I think. Wasn't that one of the the topics?
0: All things, all things related to being a leader. Exactly. And that... Had nothing to do with their core business, which was manufacturing stuff. You know, they make all kinds of stuff—stuff stuff that's on the space shuttle and SpaceX and you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And what that did is it helped them connect with their target audience on a whole different level, and it gave them an enormous amount of material that they could produce and people they could engage to help them produce that content. You know, and if you have a budget for it, you don't have to do everything yourself. You can go out and get someone. And there's lots and lots of writers who are experts in different fields, and they're happy to write about their field for you.
1: Yeah, but somebody along the way said, wait a minute, why don't we first figure out what their primal urges are? Hey, wait a minute, I just read a book about that. So (laughs) it starts with that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, folks, if you only take one thing away. But let me ask you if readers took only one thing away from the book, Anthony Butler, what would you hope it would be?
0: My hope is that you'll stop thinking about yourself and think more about your audience. Because if you think about your audience deeply and how you can help them in a bigger way than just what you do, that's how you're going to make authentic connections. That's how you're going to grow your business. That's how you're going to make a big splash on social media or grow your blog or get traffic back to your website. And eventually that's going to lead to more sales for sure.
1: Well said. Great advice. And it's, you know what? It's, it's easy and short to say, and it's really hard for organizations to do it. So But folks, listeners, you can do it. You can get your companies moving in that direction. What is one thing a listener could do today just to start to put in action one of the ideas from your book, like even before the book arrives? One thing they can
0: do before the book arrives, I would say sit down with your sales team and start asking them questions about the people as individuals that they're engaging with in their process. Like who are they? Where do they live? What kinds of things are they interested in? You know, what, what's the demographics of them, okay? Start to understand them. Because once you do that, and you start to understand each of the major individuals as a tribe in your sales process, it'll help the marketing team a hundred times to create content that's directly for them. Mm. And then you're gonna map that to top, middle, and bottom of your funnel. Like, like that's that's what you're gonna do. Um, and, and this will make everything easier because then you're going to completely align sales with marketing. Marketing is going to be marketing to the people the salespeople are actually selling to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you just have to remember, you're not marketing to businesses. Right. Businesses are not real. Okay. Yeah,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: People are real. You're marketing to the people in the
1: business. And those people are a ball of emotion.
0: That's exactly it. Yes.
1: And there's nothing better. I've seen this work where... And the the buyer feels like that company gets them. They understand them. And the other thing I want to remind folks is is just like running from the bear with your friend, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your friend. And I know that really applies to Montana. But it's like you don't have to do this perfectly, folks. You just have to do a little bit better than your competition, and it'll catch fire. I've seen it work. And if it doesn't work, I'll refund your money. So – Looking back on your career, what books have most inspired it?
0: You know, I, I really love Stephen Pressfield, his The War of Art.
1: Yes. I, I think
0: there's, there's a lot of truth in that book. I think every marketer should read that book. That should be required reading in every, <laughs> any, in every creative endeavor, you should read that book. Um, you know, some other books that I've really, really thought are influential, you know, was Chris Vogler, The Writer's Journey. Russell Brunson, Expert Secrets, great, great book, great marketing book. Um, he, he lays out some really, really smart, smart tactical things that you can do and some strategic stuff. So I would say those three are probably on the top of my list for someone who's just getting into marketing and just getting into any kind of creative field.
1: Oh, great, great. Yeah, I uh, I was able to interview Stephen Pressfield for the 400th episode about his book, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants To Be, which was sort of a continuation of The War of Art. But The War of Art, oh, I reread that before his interview and then read the, uh, the other one. But it's just – it's he's one of those few authors that when I read his book, I think he's been monitoring my thoughts
0: it's funny you say that. I have a a journal entry. I was like, Steve Pressfield wrote The War of Art for Anthony Butler.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's like he's been... And there's another one. Seth Godin's another one where I just think, God, I I can't get away from this guy. He... The, the arguments here are, are just airtight, Ugh. and they're short books. They're really good. And that book has been mentioned, The War of Art, has been mentioned by a number of authors over the years being very uh, influential. So, well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know,
0: of late, I've really been reading a lot of fiction, believe it or not.
1: That's good for you. Yes, folks, don't, ex- don't only read these books. Nonfiction books. Fiction is very good for your brain, but please go ahead.
0: <laughs> so I, I have a giant, giant library of nonfiction, and I, I think it 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 makes me a little bit more anxious. And reading fiction helps me relax. It's I can just disconnect, and I, you know I'm doing lots of client work, and I, I'm still helping companies you know grow their marketing. So I'm thinking about their stuff a lot, and fiction just helps me disconnect. So then when I do come back. I'm full focused and I've got energy and it's, it's, it's been a great thing. So
1: oh, who, who are some of the authors that you, you like, uh, uh, fiction authors?
0: Well, recently I've been enjoying a kind of a fantasy fiction with my son, my, one of my teenage sons is this author named Will White. And he has a, uh, a series called Cradle. Fantastic. It's kind of like the last airbender, you know, last avatar, kind of kung fu mage fighters. (laughs) Really good book. Real fun, fun series.
1: Oh, good. Good. Well, at Marketing Book Podcast, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your site, primalstorytelling.com, your LinkedIn profile. And now a word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big, big favor. Please reach out in some way to Anthony and congratulate him on the book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, putting up with a lot of stupid jokes. Send him a message on LinkedIn uh, or on his website. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if he hears from enough of you, you know he'll he'll really appreciate it. if he writes another book. He's going to want to come back on the show. Heck, he might even invite me out to Montana to go hunting. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book podcast and your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these. these. These links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Primal Storytelling, Marketing for Humans. The author is Anthony Butler. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Well, Douglas, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, it it was fun.
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the, legions of listeners who have left an itunes review please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcast stuff just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and i'll drop it in the mail and remember the words of the late great jim Rohn, who said formal education will make you a living self-education will make you a fortune